Well, this is our final session for this semester of Roots and uh, session number 12. We will start back up the next semester in February, middle of February somewhere, I don't remember the date. And uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, these writings uh, that reveal who you are, uh, the apostolic authority that you placed in Paul so that, Lord, that when he spoke, he spoke for you. And as we read tonight, and as we've read over the past 11 weeks, Lord, uh, we've been listening to you by the power of the Holy Spirit through a man named Paul. These words have been protected through the generations that we might know that you are God and what your expectations are for us who live on this earth. So tonight in this final session, I pray what I've prayed in each one, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures so that we might know you and we might know your son. In Jesus' name, amen. First and second Corinthians. Um, this is the study. This is uh, the... Um, this is the ending of that particular first second Timothy. What did I say? Corinthians? Is this a Corinthians? It says Corinthians. So we're not doing Corinthians. I did that a long time ago. By the way, I had a church call me this past week from Florida who wants to uh, do our first Corinthians study uh, in that church in Florida. And I gave them permission, gave them all the materials. So they're doing it down there. Maybe that was in my head when I finished this, uh, this first sentence. Um, this last chapter is pretty tough. It really is. When you understand where Paul was at and what he was writing and what it meant, it's pretty tough. At least it is for me. He's clearly announcing that his execution is near. You might call 2 Timothy Paul's famous last words. But you would definitely come to that conclusion after you read chapter 4. Let's start this final chapter, verse 1. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Now, I got to tell you, that verse I could talk about tonight, just that one verse. Because can you see what he just announced in one verse? He's, he's saying... I'm in the presence of God and His Son. Look what he says. I urge you in the presence of God. So he's feeling the Holy Spirit's power. And he knows the Holy Spirit is the presence of God and it is the presence of His Son. It's the presence of God. God, I'm in the presence of God. So because I'm in the presence of God, I'm going to urge you and reveal some things to you. And what's he say? who will someday, here's, here's what I'm revealing. I'm urging you in the presence of God the Father and God the Son, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes back to set up his kingdom. You see all that? Can you wrap your mind around what he just said? Both the living and the dead are going to experience some sort of bodily resurrection. Are you listening? Both the living and the dead are going to experience some type of a bodily resurrection. The saved will be resurrected into eternal flesh. We talk about that a lot here. And they will reign with Christ on this earth. Okay? There's going to be a bodily resurrection. When I say bodily resurrection, I mean you're not going to come up as a spook or a ghost or something. You're going to, you're going to come up uh, in eternal flesh. And, and you're going you're to reign on this earth with Christ for a thousand years. And then we enter the eternal realm. But, but the lost will be raised also some sort of a bodily resurrection. They're going to be raised to judgment and experience what is called in the Scripture the second death. So whether you're in Christ or you're not in Christ, whether you've received Jesus as your king 
or you've rejected him as your king, that no, no, I don't want you to be king, there's a, rec there's a resurrection coming. Both cases. So let's do something. He, Paul started the chapter with it. So because he started the chapter with it, let's, let's look at it, okay? So let's go to the Gospel of John, and let's see about these resurrections. John 5, 28. You, you want a powerful verse? This is Jesus talking. He says, don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming. He's making a prophetic announcement about a future event. Don't be surprised. Indeed, a time is coming when all the dead in their graves. Okay? Are you hearing me? Jesus says, all dead people in their graves. All dead people in their graves are going to hear the voice of God's Son. He's going to shout. And they will rise. All the people in their graves. Those who have done, all the people in their graves. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. All right? You want to be in this first section. All those who have done good will rise to eternal life. And those who have commit, continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. Now, I want you to notice something. One is rising <clears throat> to eternal life. They're not going to need judgment because their judgment's already been settled. Do you know when their judgment was settled? On that cross. That was their judgment. You understand? Salvation is, is accepting the fact that Jesus' death on the cross was my judgment. That was me. That was supposed to be me. And instead of me there, because that's my judgment, instead of me there, Jesus said, no, I'm going to take his judgment. I, because by faith, he took my judgment. So I don't have a judgment coming because my judgment's been finished. Somebody say hallelujah. Because my judgment's done. It's done. That's him. So I'm not being raised to judgment. I'm being raised to eternal life. Now, I will be raised and you will be raised to assignments and rewards in the eternal kingdom and in the millennial kingdom, but not for judgment. Your judgment's finished. The saved lost thing's already been settled. It's done. It's paid for. I'm, I, my sins have been atoned for. But there's a group of people who continued in evil. They rejected the salvation of Jesus Christ. They're going to rise to judgment. And I'll read in a few minutes what that means. So, so why am I doing this tonight? I'm doing this because Paul is on death row. And of all the things this man could say on death row, what's he say? I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. And then he's going to tell you something. So he's making this the first part of his closing chapter. So let's go to Revelation. Chapter 20, verse 4. John is seeing the future as revealed by Christ. And he said, I saw thrones. And I saw people sitting on thrones, sitting on them, and they were given authority to judge. And I saw souls. Now, don't, don't read over the word. I see souls. Now, these aren't the eternal bodies. This isn't flesh and bone like we know right now. He's seeing heaven. And he's seeing the throne of God. And around the throne of God, he sees souls. So their bodies are on the earth. So he's seeing the soul. They've left their bodies. These people he's talking about, they've left their bodies on the earth, and their soul has gone into the presence of God. And I saw souls of those who had been beheaded. Now, they died on the earth, and their bodies still on the earth, but their souls are with God at the throne, the souls of those who have been beheaded. And here's the interesting point. Why did they lose their head? Number one, because they testified about Jesus. And number two, what? They proclaimed the Word of God. That'll get you killed. By the way, I believe that's a direct reference to the seven-year tribulation. Okay. In the tribulation, if, you're test if you testify about Jesus and you preach the Word of God, they're going to behead you. In fact, it's talked about. They're going to they're cut your head off. If they can catch you, they're going to cut your head off. And their souls, their souls went to be with the Lord. Their bodies 
are beheaded on the earth. Now, this is what John's seeing. They had not worshipped the beast, these beheaded people. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again. Right? These souls, <coughs> they all came to life again. John's seeing the future. He's seeing an event where there's souls, and then something happens to the souls that allow them to have a body again. Are you with me? These souls are going to now get a body. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ. Not as souls. They reigned with Christ in new bodies. When's that going to happen? I'm going to show you. They came, they, they came to life again. Now I want you to, when you read that, I want you to imagine that God is putting on them eternal flesh. He is wrapping their soul in eternal flesh. They all came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Not, not, a, not, not as a soul, a ghost without a body, no. They were souls, but now they have bodies and now they're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to, by, come to life, come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Anybody want to guess what resurrection that one is? You don't want to be in that one. Okay? You want to be in the first one. How do I know? Verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him I believe on this present earth for 1,000 years. Have you ever heard uh, this little statement? It, it, it has a lot of theological depth to it. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So Jesus said to you and I, we must be born again. And unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be born again. So when he says born once, so we, I had a birthday um, 63, almost 63 years ago. That was my born once event. But I had another birthday. I've been born twice. I was born again of the water and born again of the spirit. I got two birthdays. I've been born twice. I've been born again. So if you've been born twice, you only got to die once. And I got to tell you, you want to know the best news? There's a strong probability you won't even have that one. Are you listening? Because if Jesus comes to rapture his church and you've been born twice, there's a chance you'll be one of the living that will never know death even once. But let's say that you're not. Let's say that my grandparents, for example, they were born again. But the reality is they are in the, their body has gone into the ground. But the reality is they won't experience the second death. Just one. The bodily death has been experienced, but not the death of the final judgment. What happens after the thousand years of Christ's reign on this present earth? And they will, these souls in heaven, okay? These, he's, and by the way, when I read Revelation 20, these are specifically um, tribulation saints that had been martyred during the seven-year tribulation. They died uh, because they came to faith. Listen. These are people who did not have faith before the rapture. Are you with me? So that because they did not, they were not believers before the rapture, they were, they had to endure the tribulation. But in the tribulation, they came to Christ. But when they came to Christ in the seven year tribulation, after the church had left, they had their heads cut off. So can I give you some really good advice? come to Christ before the rapture. These people get new bodies. And then they got new bodies. And then they're going to reign when Jesus comes back to the earth at the end of the tribulation. These souls come back and the bodies are all put back together and we're going to reign with him. Those martyred during the tribulation and those of us who had been with Christ 
uh, during the tribulation, we'll all come back with him, get resurrected flesh. We're going to be with him on this earth for a thousand years. That's what it says. So somebody says, why do you believe that? Because that's what it says. So I believe it. What happens after the thousand years then? The resurrection of the lost. I told you when I started tonight, both will receive some sort of a, some, some sort of a bodily resurrection. This resurrection after the thousand years. Did you notice it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years had ended? Remember? So let's just move into that. After the thousand years had ended, Revelation 20, 11, and I saw a great white throne. A lot of people, because he says a great white throne, a lot of people call this the great white throne judgment. Okay? Because it's kind of unique. And then I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And I saw what? Dead people. I saw the dead, both great and small. That means rich people and poor people, famous people and unknown people. I saw the dead, great and small, and they're all standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead, here they are again. The, the, listen, these are, this is not a believer's judgment. There's no believers in this judgment. These are dead people. Believers are not dead people. Believers aren't waiting for eternal life. I'm not waiting for eternal life. I already have eternal life. I'm waiting for the new body to put it in. I already got eternal life. You see, I'm not a walking dead guy. I already have eternal life. I'm just waiting for the body that's going to go, that the eternal life is going to be put in. But these are dead people. Why? Because they rejected eternal life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And let me ask you a question. Do you want to be judged according to what you've been done? I don't. I want to be judged according to what he did, Jesus, on the cross, according to what he has done. There's the difference. And what, listen, the sea gave up its dead. So anybody that died in the ocean, in the water, and their burial was in the bottom of the, of the sea, on this day, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, the sea's going to give up his dead. You know, the picture, it didn't hit me until several years ago, that when this process, what I'm about to read to you is over. Oh, this is so good. When this is over, right here, and this, this great white throne judgment is over, there won't be a dead corpse on the earth. It'll be purified. Think about it. Every graveyard will be empty from Adam to that time. All believers will have been raised and gotten new bodies. All dead people, unbelievers, they're going to rise through. They're coming off here. They're leaving this earth. He's going to purify this earth. He's going to purify it. No corpses. To a Jew, a Jew couldn't be around a dead corpse, right? So he'd be unclean. So he's going to clean the place up. What's he doing? There's not going to be any in the sea either. You're not going to be able to dump them in the ocean. He's going to clean up the ocean. The sea gave up its dead and death and the grave gave up their dead, graveyards, crematoriums, dust piles, whatever. And all these dead people were judged according to their deeds. There's your first sign they're in trouble. Then death and grave. You know how big 14 is? Death and the grave. Death and the grave. That's the enemy, right? Death and the grave. That's our enemy. What's he going to do with our enemy? They're, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Death and the grave are thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And I want to add something. Alive into the lake of fire. They're conscious. They're not in a soul sleep. They're not unconscious, fade to black. No, no, no. They are resurrected and they're alive. They're alive as far as consciousness. I don't know if you can call it alive. 
But they're conscious. And in their conscious state, they are cast into the lake of fire. So what about the statement when he appears to set up his kingdom? What about the statement? So we'll go to the next page. Let's read verse 1 again. We're back in 2 Timothy. Paul says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead. When? When he appears to set up his kingdom. So I've read a lot of what's going to happen, but when? When he appears to set up his kingdom. When's this stuff going to happen? When's it, when he appears to set up his kingdom. So where's he going to set up his kingdom? Did anybody remember what the angel Gabriel told Mary? About when's he going to come? When angel Gabriel comes to talk to Mary, she's not even conceived yet. The seed of God's not even been placed inside her womb yet. And even though the seed of God's not even placed in there yet, God's already determined what's going to happen at the end. God's already announced it. He's announcing it. Let me read it to you. Mary was greatly troubled, probably one of the understatements of Scripture. She was greatly troubled at Gabriel's words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child, and you'll give birth to a son, and you're going to give him the name Jesus, and he will be great. And he'll be called the Son of the Most High God, the Son of the Most High. And here, here it comes. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now, everybody listen to me. Nowhere, nowhere is the throne of David located in heaven. It's in Jerusalem. Okay? So if you're one of these people that thinks, well, the throne, God's going to give Jesus, the Son, the throne of David, and that's a heavenly position, you're making that up. It's not a heavenly position. The throne of David, well, read the Bible. It's in Jerusalem. And if that's not enough, go to verse 33, and he, this child's not even born yet. Conception has not occurred yet. And God says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And what's Paul right at the end? When he appears to set up his kingdom, these things, the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the lost, these things are going to happen when he appears to set up his kingdom. Well, Mary knew he was going to come and set up his kingdom. You just don't know when. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. When it comes, when he starts, when, he, when his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, East of Jerusalem, his kingdom begins eternal, has no end. David's throne is not in heaven, it's in Jerusalem. Now, we can look at Paul's final challenge. That's just, that's just one verse. See how much fun is in one verse? That's one verse. Now we can look at Paul's final challenge, his exhortation to Timothy and to the church that will follow this teaching through the upcoming generations, and that's us. All right, that's us. Paul is speaking on behalf of and in the presence of God. Understand, how did he say this? In the presence of God and his son, I, and he tells this stuff. So he's coming from the presence of God. He's compelled to speak because he has experienced their divine presence. He's speaking for them in the power of the Holy Spirit. So pay attention. What is his solemn exhortation? What is his solemn, I'm standing before God challenge? Here it comes, verse 8. You ready? Preach the word. This is it. Oh, my, this is it. Preach the word. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, encourage your people with good teaching. In the presence of God, knowing that in the future, the resurrection is going to be for the, the dead and the resurrection is going to be for the saved. And Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. And in light of all that is going on in one verse, what's he saying? Preach the word. Preach the word. I find these two verses to be some of the most compelling in all of Paul's teaching. 
There's so much that could be said in, the, in his final letter, but Paul realized the only hope for Timothy, the only hope in future generations, the only hope for mankind is what? Preach the Word. That's it. That's it. Wayne Smith, most of you know Wayne, a famous preacher over in Lexington. He's got this saying that he always used to say, and here's what he would say. He said, preach the gospel, brother, preach it. Put it high where men can teach it. Put it low where men can reach it. Preach the gospel, brother, preach it. That's it. Just preach the gospel. You, you don't have to do a whole lot of other stuff. Just preach the gospel. And the reality is this. When Jesus tells this parable of the sower, well, he says this, that a farmer goes out to sow seeds. And the seed is the Word of God. And, he, and, and the farmer just starts sowing seeds. So sowing seeds is what? Preach the gospel. Preach the Word. Just. But some of the seeds fell on the path. And you can't grow seeds on the path. And some of the seeds fell over top of a, a shallow rock, and it sprouted for a little while, but then it got a little hot, and it, it died too. And some of the seeds, they fell in, uh, looked like good soil, but there was weeds and thorns, and they grew up alongside of it, and eventually it got choked out. But there's some seeds that fell on good soil, and it produced a harvest, a great harvest, a hundred times more than the seed that was sown. Preach the word. Guess what? Some will, and some won't receive it. It's not my job. Figure it out. Just preach the Word. It's the only hope for mankind. Somebody preached the Word in front of me. Do you know that? Somebody preached the Word. I was sitting in a room one night, and somebody preached the Word. And in the middle of that session, God did something. He did it. I didn't do it. He did something. That Word, that seed penetrated my very hard heart, supernaturally producing a harvest. I don't know how to do that. I still don't know how to do that. The only hope we have is the very thing that the church is struggling with today. Just preach the Word. Preach it. Wayne Smith's quote, it still has application. There was a time in the American culture when it was favorable to preach the Word, but that time is gone. I get it. I'm not in denial. I'm willing to accept reality. We have moved into a post-Christian culture, but we must still preach the Word. Whether it's favorable or not doesn't mean you get a chance to not preach the Word. It is our only hope. In fact, let me say this. I believe we've gone from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture, and we have now entered an anti-Christian culture to where our culture has become hostile, hostile to Christianity. We must be patient while preaching it. Seeds don't usually come up in a day. We must preach it, but we must be patient. We must use its authority, and I'm holding it up. We must use its authority to correct. That's what Paul says. Use the, preach it and use it to correct. Use it to correct. Use it as the standard of absolute truth, the standard of absolute righteousness, the, the compass that tells you where due north is. Because if you don't know where north is, you don't know where you're going. It's your compass. It is our standard of absolute truth. Even if people refuse to believe it, we don't change it. We don't negotiate with it. We must use this authority to rebuke calling out sin and idolatry. Not in hate. Calling out sin and idolatry. We don't do it in hate. But we do it because the lost is their only chance. I hope this battery's not going dead too. It is. <laughs> this has never happened before. Y'all just pretend like I'm still talking.
There we go. Uh, somewhere. Okay, we must use its authority to rebuke. I don't like using authority to rebuke. You know, that's not pleasant for me. I don't like that. You think I find any pleasure to rebuke somebody with the word of God? No, but I will do it. I don't like it. Rebuking is when you call out sin. You just tell the truth. You call out sin and idolatry. We don't do it in hate, but we do it because I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough because I know about the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and I know about this lake of burning sulfur, and I know about the second death. And because I know those things, I cannot look at you while you're in sin and pretend like it's not real. I can't do it. The Holy Spirit won't let me. He won't let me do it. We must use it to encourage, and I'm doing that right now. Is it working? Paul says to use it to correct, rebuke, and encourage. We can't preach it if we don't know it. Church, we can't preach it if we don't know it. We're supposed to be prepared. We're supposed to make every effort to learn it, to know it, so that we're equipped to share it. To know it is to share it. Why doesn't, or who doesn't want to share good news? In fact, listen, here's a, here's a sociological reality. Everybody everywhere wants to share good news, right? Don't act like you don't, because yes, you do. If somebody tells you good news, you're going to get on the phone, you're going to go, you're going to tell somebody, because there's something about good news that's contagious. This is the best good news ever been released on the earth. You don't have to die. You can have eternal life. Makes you wonder how many people really believe it. It does. Makes you wonder. And we must do it with urgency. Another preacher friend of mine, Wally Rendell over in Lexington, he just recently retired. Here's what he says. He says, may we preach as dying men to dying men. Because the reality is I'm dying. And so are you. And why are we pretending? Why the urgency? Because every day we are one day closer to our last day. Count's not going up going down. Every day someone is going out into eternity without God. Every day I look at the obituaries and every day some of those people are going into the darkness. Does it matter? As we mentioned last week in great detail, it will be very difficult to preach the true gospel in the last hours of the last days. Ask Chick-fil-A. Some of y'all saw this week where they finally knuckled under and they, they agreed to try to quieten the LBGT community. They agreed to stop donating money to the Salvation Army. Oh, what a terrible thing to give money to the Salvation Army who feeds the homeless and the poor. But the Salvation Army won't, they refuse to let go of the word. So Chick-fil-A says, well, we can't continue our business plan of international growth unless we deal with this issue. So we'll stop contributing money to the Family Research Council and Salvation Army. And there was another group in there too to try to appease them. I'm going to tell you, it won't work. Because the only way you're ever going to appease the world is to let go of the name and the word. And if you do that, you're just, you're lost. That's what saves the Word of God reveals the name of God. That's it. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. Next verse. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound or wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. I do not believe these verses 3 and 4 are futuristic. They are here right now. Let me give you an example. Gender. I can't even imagine that we're having a national debate about gender, male and female. There are not three genders. There are not four genders. There's not five. 
I read where Google says there's now 100. No, there's not. No, there's not. There's male and there's female. They will reject the truth and follow after myths or lies or preposterous ideas. For 6,000 years, we've understood a basic physiological truth. There's male and there's female, but not now. They reject the truth. They mock the truth. Satan hates the truth. He hates it. And it's just another attempt to destroy families. God's created order to create chaos. You know, I often think this whole thing about gender neutrality, um, what in the world's going to happen to women athletics? You know, you may notice that all these guys are, are starting to think, oh, I see a gold medal here. So this guy who just says, well, I'm, an, I'm now a woman, he goes over and runs female track. And, he, and he's beating the women. And the women are saying, well, that's foul. I said, no, it's nuts. It's all nuts. The truth is being rejected. And substitutes are being put in the place of truth. It's a false freedom. This, this idea that, that gender neutrality and, and all of this stuff is, is, will set people free. It's a false freedom. It's not a freedom. Let, let me give you an example. Back in, what, 1973, when this whole abortion issue came up for the first time, the Supreme Court opens its ruling. You know what it was? That, that there's a door here, and, and the door, if you open the door to women's right to choose, behind that door is freedom. Let's, let's swing the door open so people can be free. You know what's behind the door? Now, right now, our last estimate is 62 million dead babies behind that door. They're not free. 62 million. Did anybody know that was behind that door when they pushed that door open? So, you know, and and back, what, a few years ago when this whole uh, marriage, same-sex marriage thing came open, and they they light the White House with, with rainbow colors, mocking, mocking God's rainbow, which he gave to Noah as a covenant. Mocking it. But anyway, didn't he? An- another door went open. No, uh, let's, behind the door, what, what, what? Love wins, right? Love wins. Let's find freedom. Let's find a, a new door of freedom has come. No, there's no freedom because there's no truth. And, and the, the sad thing is, is church after church after church after church after church, they start going along. They start going along. They just start. Let's start going along with it. What did he say? Verse 4, they'll reject the truth and chase after myths. You, you know it's not true. You know there's, there's not a hundred genders. This is the ultimate definition of idolatry. It's when you replace truth with a substitute. Because truth has a name. His name's Jesus. He's a person. Truth's not an ideology. Truth is a name. Truth is a person. So if you reject the truth and you chase after a lie or a myth, you're rejecting a person. A person. 2 Timothy 4 5. So you should keep your mind, keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. How long will it be until this message that I just told? And by the way, we put these out. I don't, this is not just here. It goes online. This, this will be online tomorrow. How long before uh, someone will say, you'll either stop this or you're going to be put in jail or fined or the church will lose its tax-exempt status, or, or something will happen. How much longer? How much longer do you think we got? And there's still people sitting in the room thinking, no, I'm not in America. Then you need to wake up. You need to wake up. Stay sober. Stay diligent. Stay clear-minded. These days will be very difficult. Don't be afraid of suffering. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go to jail, but I want to be in the first resurrection. I'm going to have to decide which one I want more. It might be the spot that God does his greatest work. 
is in the midst of suffering. Work hard at telling those around you about the faith that God has given you and the peace that that faith has brought to your life. Carry out your spiritual gift. Let your gift, your gifts grow into full bloom. Bear much fruit. What? In the midst of suffering. I'm telling you all this because in the midst of suffering is when I'm convinced the church shines the brightest. When it is the darkest, that's when the light shines the brightest. This, is, this, this should be the finest hour of the true church. You understand? Because when the darkness comes, it cannot move the light. It can't do it. Just, I want you to, there's a physical example of this room. If I turn that light switch off in the back, darkness comes, okay? Darkness comes to this room. But when I push that light switch on, when light comes, what happens to the darkness? What happens? It has to leave. The church, you are the light of the world. We hold this truth. We're, we're the light. We, we push back the darkness. It's the finest hour for the true church. We're going to need each other more and more in these last days. That's why the assembly of the church body is so important. We don't push church attendance here because we're a social club. We push church attendance here because I know something. If Satan can weed you out of this group and isolate you and sing, get you singled out, he will come against you in power and authority and you'll, he'll overcome you. I got a situation a week and a half ago, person in the church, terrible sin has fallen into this family, and I looked up their church attendance, and about the time that sin took that family was about the time they stopped attending this church. And I'm thinking, coincidence? I don't think so. He cut you out of the herd. He singled you out, and he got you. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of the world is coming soon. I like that for a poster. The end of the world is coming soon. So do what? Panic? No. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important in all, continue to show deep love for each other. You can't do that if you're not around each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. Careful, cheerfully share your home. And I put in this next statement. Cheerfully share your home and your possessions and your wealth with those in need who need a meal or a place to stay. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together. Let us not neglect the assembly of the body of Christ as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of the Lord is drawing near. So the, the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more you're going to need each other, the more I'm going to need you. This next section is one of the most quoted scriptures in the Bible. We use it at funeral services of believers. What a powerful testimony to those who fought the good fight of faith. Never gave up and never gave in. Here we go, verse 6. Paul says, as for me, he's in jail, right? He's in a Roman prison. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. I want you to visualize what that means in the Jewish culture. They had drink offerings that they poured out on the altar before God. They would take wine or they would take different liquids and, they, are, and they, would, they would pour them on the altar of God as an offering to God. And Paul's saying, that's my life. My life is being poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. He knows it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. I must admit that this is my life's mission, verse 7. Nothing else is going to matter if I fail in this calling. And I have shared with the church a hundred times that there were three specific things that God impressed upon me and brought me into the ministry. Number one, He has called me to be a watchman. I'm supposed to warn the people of the danger of what's coming. Number two, the deliverer is coming. I believe in the soon return of Christ. Number three, make the church ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb. She thinks she's ready. She is not ready. 
I believe one of my primary responsibilities right now, what the Holy Spirit is impressing upon me now in this ministry after almost 20 years, make the church ready to suffer. Prepare you for opposition. Because the reality is, most of you aren't ready for opposition. I'm convinced there's a great time of suffering coming. If the Lord tarries, I'm praying for the rapture. I'm not going to lie and act real spiritual. I'm praying for the rapture, okay? I'm praying for the day the Lord takes us out of here. What's that prayer Jesus told us to pray, Luke 21? Pray that you'd be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. I prayed that this morning. I pray that I'll be strong enough to escape the coming horrors. But just in case the coming horrors are closer and we have to endure some of those, I still pray I'm strong enough. Paul spoke these words to the elders at Ephesus before he went to Jerusalem, before he went, he knew, he knew what was in front of him. And, and listen, the Holy Spirit's telling me, in front of us is opposition, like you have never known. Church in America, like you have never known. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how fast it's coming. I don't know. But there's opposition in head, ahead of us. Here's what Paul says Acts 20, he says, and now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except the Holy Spirit tells me in, in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. The Holy Spirit's telling Paul, you're going to Jerusalem, but jail and suffering are there. And he says, but, but so what does that mean? I'm not going to Jerusalem? He says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So here, I'm going to make it personal, just, just me. You're going to have to do your own story. I'm going to tell you my story. My story is God told me three things. He revealed three things. I'm supposed to be a watchman. I'm supposed to tell people the soon return of Christ, and I'm supposed to do what I can to make the church ready for the wedding supper. She's not ready. My life is worth nothing if I don't finish those three things. I got to do those three things. No matter what it costs. If it means you go to jail, you're going to go to jail. If it means to come take your stuff, they'd come take your stuff. Paul says, my life's worth nothing if I don't complete, if I don't finish the work assigned me by God, assigned me by Jesus Christ. And what was that? For Paul, it was the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So he went on. And did he go to jail? Yeah. Did he have suffering? Yeah. And they're about to cut his head off. I can safely assume that Paul's life was not worth nothing. His life had immeasurable value. How many people, generations, have found their hope in Christ through Paul's teachings? Millions. Millions. Was his life worth nothing? No, his wife, his life had eternal value. And now for the good news. You need some good news while you're on death row in a Roman prison, right? Here's the good news. Verse 8. And now the prize awaits me. Oh, what a way to look at death. Oh, oh what a way to look at death. And now a prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. Now, I'm going to get into that. Notice when he gets the prize. When he dies? Uh-uh. Listen, let me go back. And now the prize awaits me. He says, I know I'm about to die. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I'm, my death is near. And now a prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, hallelujah, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. I've been looking forward to this verse. You know why? It looks like there's a special reward, a prize allotted for those people who look forward to Jesus' coming. So... Uh, I say this tongue-in-cheek. I've got some people who they always say, um, you talk too much about Jesus coming. 
There's a couple of them that are actual preachers. And they say, oh, that's all you talk about is Jesus coming. And I said, okay, okay, okay. Just keep mocking. Keep it up. There's a prize awaiting for those who want, not just for me, but for all who are eagerly looking forward to his appearing. I'll accept that one. You see, I don't worry too much about this special prize. That's not it. But I can surely say I'm looking forward to his coming. Remember, some of you, I hope you know that when I send out an email or I do, I, I usually finish it with what I call my four-word prayer. My four-word prayer works for everything, anywhere, all the time. Maranatha, Hosanna, hallelujah, amen. You know what it means? Come soon, Lord. Save us. Begin to reign. Make it so. Go on and find an application that doesn't work. Try. Come soon, Lord. Save me. Begin to reign. Make it so. You see, it's a worldview. It's just how you see life. Come soon, Lord, because I know this is not going to get better. I'm turning 63 Saturday. If you're sending cards, put cash inside. (laughs) I'm turning 63 Saturday, and I know this is not getting better. Listen, I'm not getting better. I get it. I told what I say a couple weeks ago. I got some flack for that one too. Said I'm in the fourth quarter and some of y'all in overtime. (laughs) I know it's not getting better. So come soon, Lord, save us. Begin to rain. Make it so. This is it. This this is the church. It's, it's not just some nutty preacher. This is that's the whole church supposed to be thinking like this. That's, that's, that's what he, the Holy Spirit's crying out. Two other big points in that text. Did you catch them? Who is going to give that reward to Paul and when's Paul actually going to receive it? Here we're going to get into a little theology. It will be given by Jesus himself. Did you see it? And Paul will receive it at the resurrection of the last day. When he returns. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't count his final reward as coming at his last breath when when his soul will go to be with the Lord, but when the Lord returns on the last day? Let me be specific. So if I look just roughly at the map, Paul breathed his last breath uh, roughly 2,000 years ago. But his prize, his final reward, will not come until... The return of Christ. Are you with me? Stay with me. Now, listen, I believe his soul immediately went to be with the Lord. So don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But that's not the final reward. And also, number two, I need to say this. I am convinced that time in heaven is not like time here. Okay? I don't think we operate on the same time. I think we, we, we do time in like a linear, it's like this. I don't think God does linear time. I think God, he's just all time. Okay? Don't try to figure it out. I'll give you a headache. But Paul's final reward, what did he say? When the Lord returns. So that's been 2,000 years. He didn't have his final reward. What's linked to his final reward? How did we start tonight? I stand in the presence of God and in his son, and I reveal to you two resurrections. Right? What does it mean? Paul had already communicated this reward and its timing to the church at Corinth. And he also told the church at Thessalonica. So is there a reward? Yeah, if you stop breathing tonight, your soul is going to be escorted into the presence of God. So yes, that's a reward. Please don't take me wrong. That's a reward. It's not your final reward. Your final reward will wait until Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives. Because when he stands on the Mount of Olives, in the final, in, in the final, in the final resurrection. Now, there's 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 a resurrection. Now, let me back up. If you're a believer in Christ in the church age, it'll actually be when he calls you up into the clouds, not when he stands on the Mount of Olives. Let me let me correct that. So let me let me go just read it to you. First Corinthians fifteen forty eight. Earthly people are like earthly man. Heavenly people are like a heavenly man. 
just as we are now like the earthly man. So let's look around. We got Adam and Eve bodies. After the fall, Adam and Eve bodies, okay? Just as we are now like the earthly man, Adam, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Who is he? Jesus. We're going to be like him, okay? That means we're going to have to get a resurrected body to be like him. One day, we'll be like the heavenly man. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies, our Adam kind of body that we have now, our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't take this trash into heaven. Okay? You can't take a bad knee into heaven. They check that stuff at the door. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. Oh, what a wonderful secret. We will not all die. There will be a group of people who will not ever know death. But we will all be transformed. That means you're going to get a new body even if you don't die. It'll happen in a moment. In the blink of an eye. When the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died. Okay. Believers who have died will be raised to live forever. That's when they're going to get their new body. When the last trumpet is sound, that my grandparents buried in Corinth Cemetery are going to rise and get a new body. They're, they're souls with the Lord. They're going to rise and get a new body. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. And our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Now, where's that put authority? That puts authority here. This scripture will be fulfilled. Where's the authority? This is it. All of his conversation is to say, this thing has to happen. It has to happen. This scripture will be filled. What's it say? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, stay strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Stay strong. It is. Be immovable. Be enthusiastic. That's the thing I wish was in the church, enthusiasm. I'm being honest. I find much enthusiasm in a lot of places, but not in church. I find people enthusiastic about a lot of stuff, about your job, about your hobbies, about ball games, but not about their Lord. Last time I went to a UK basketball game, I sat there and I'll tell you, and I'm, I didn't enjoy it. I'll just be honest, I didn't enjoy it. I stood there in the middle of 20-something thousand people, and I look at all these people going crazy about a tall guy sticking a leather ball in a round circle. And I wondered how many of them were lost and forever going to hell. Now, I'm not saying everybody in the ball game's lost. I'm, that's not my point. I see all this enthusiasm for things that really in the end aren't going to amount to nothing. And the very thing that we ought to be enthusiastic about is that we, a secret has been revealed to us that cures death. It cures death. It's called the resurrection. And, and if that's not enough to motivate you, if that, if that doesn't turn your switch, if you don't get this you get eternal lake of fire well, maybe fear ought to motivate you the resurrection of the last day will be the final reward that's my whole point Paul is waiting on the resurrection of the last day that's when he'll get his final reward we will what is the final reward listen the final reward will be you get a new body and, and you get a new body to do life in. 
Our ultimate crown of righteousness will come at the resurrection of the last day. Notice the rewards associated with this new body. <clears throat> Remember the, this past Sunday, I, I, said, I told you about the five bags of silver guy and the two bags of silver guy and the one bag of silver guy. And at the end, they took the one bag of silver guy's bag of silver and gave it to the guy who had already had 10. To him who has much, much more will be given. There, there are rewards in the eternal kingdom. Listen, there will be a rewards. Does anybody in the room think you're going to get the same thing as the apostle Peter gets in heaven? Really? Anybody, anybody thinking that you ought to be lined up with Paul when, 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 the, when the, uh, the houses are set up in the kingdom? No. It doesn't matter what you do. There will be rewards. Everybody doesn't get the same thing. It's not communism moved to, move to heaven. It does matter what, how you bear responsibility for what you've been given. It will matter in eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. So we're always confident. <clears throat> Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not at home with the Lord. But I'm still confident, right? I know as long as I'm in this skin, I, I, I can't be fully with him. Why? This skin cannot be with him. Are you with me? This skin cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So I'm always confident, even though I know as long as I'm in this skin... I cannot, I will not be at home with the Lord. For we live by believing, not by seeing. That's faith, not by sight. Yes, we are fully confident. And we would rather be away from this skin, away from these earthly bodies. For then we could be at home with the Lord. So whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is what? To please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. And by the way, if you're a Christian, this judgment is not standing before him to be judged, saved, or lost. This judgment is to stand before him to receive your eternal reward, your place in the eternal kingdom. For we will all, listen, everybody, we're going to all stand before him and be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we've done in this earthly body. This is not the judgment of, right, of lost or saved, if you're a believer. It is your judgment about where you will be placed in the eternal kingdom of God. Finally, Paul closes out his letter with these personal references. These are, there are two phrases that make my heart hurt in these final words. One is bring my coat, and the second is come before winter. Whew. These speak of the physical suffering of the apostle Paul. Bring my coat, come before winter. Paul has experienced extreme loneliness. And listen, he's experiencing abandonment. And let me read it. These are the, some of the final words. Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loved the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. And Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come. For he will be helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, be sure to bring the coat. I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books and especially my papers. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. But the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him. For he fought against everything we said. The first time I was brought before the judge. Listen. There's a part that just kills me. Paul says, he's in jail, right? The first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Whoa. This man preached to thousands and thousands of people. And when he's brought before the judge, nobody went with him. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety to all the Gentiles to hear and he rescued me from certain death, yes. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely and will bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and those li living in the household on Onisphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth. I left Trophimus at Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. 
Eubulus sends you greetings, as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. May the Lord be with your spirit, and may his grace be with all of you. Paul was confident that one way or the other, listen, one way or the other, the Lord will deliver him from his trials. And you know how I know that? I'm going to finish up with 1 Thessalonians 5.10. Christ died for us. So the whether we're dead or alive when he returns, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Whether we're dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you're already doing. We believe Paul was executed not too long after he wrote this letter. My conclusion to this marvelous word of God is this. Preach the gospel, brother. Preach it. Put it high where men can teach it and put it low where men can reach it. Preach the gospel, brother. Preach it. We got one hope. You know, let's be honest. To a bunch of dying people in this room, we got one hope. Preach the word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, you protected it through the generations. And we can know who you are because of the Holy Scriptures. And I pray, Father, that we'll preach the word. We'll do it as a group. We'll do it individually. We'll do it whatever, however. We'll keep sowing seeds, knowing that some are going to produce a harvest. We pray, Father, that you'd make us strong and very courageous, and we wouldn't shrink back, and we wouldn't fear suffering. And if suffering is in our future, give us the endurance so that we'll praise your name in the middle of it. We'll preach the word regardless of how much it costs. For we know that whether we're dead or alive when you return, we will live with you forever. And for that, we give you eternal thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.